It's always lovely when you gather together to hear, hear just the chatting that goes on in, the, in between different things. It's a, a great sign of community. It's a great sign of, of friendship and uh, the love that we can enjoy together in Christ. Uh, this morning I'd like to start by reading God's Word. So if you have your Bibles, uh, we have some spare Bibles up the front here. If you don't have a, have a Bible on you, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And we're going to be reading from the book of Philippians. Uh, for those of you who are visitors, we've been working through this book for the, for the last uh, 10 or so weeks, and we're towards the end of uh, the book of Philippians. And this morning I'm going to read uh, a bit more of an extended passage, uh, just to bring the context uh, together for, for us this morning. So if you can turn to Philippians chapter 3. And we'll start at uh, verse 12, and we'll read through to uh, chapter 4, verse 9. So Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Uh, Not that I have already obtained this, or am perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly and their glory, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we eagerly await a Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him also to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eudodia and I entreat Synthythia to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have laboured side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord, always. And again I say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think 
about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you all. May God add his rich blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Let us pray together, please, before we start. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for these wonderful words of exhortation and encouragement. Father, this morning as we unpack some of the deep truths that are contained in your word, shape our hearts, we pray. Father, we pray that your spirit will convict us, will refine us, will encourage us, will will lead us in the life that uh, is worthy of following Christ. Father, we ask you to do a work in our hearts. We ask you to uh, do a work in our hearts both individually and collectively as your body of believers here in Hillside. Father, set our minds on Christ. Father, set our minds on the the blessings and the richness of our union with our Saviour. Father, enable us to stand firm. Enable us to rejoice always. Enable us to run the race and to press on, realising that you've got it all in control. Father, we long to be with you. But we are here on this earth for your purposes. And Father, we just pray that you will shape our lives accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now for the last uh, few weeks we've been working through this uh, last part of the book of Philippians. I hope you, as a, as a church body, have been really enjoying just reading the book. For some I know have been writing it out. Uh, it's been a great encouragement in, in different small groups to hear the, the impact that God's Word is having on your lives. and uh, It's just really encouraging to see people wrestling with the truths in here and coming to the conclusion I've got to rest in the Lord's work in my life. I've got to press on. See, from chapter 3 onwards, when Paul starts his, his final exhortation to this beloved church. Now, this is a church he loves deeply. We've learned about that all the way through. He loves this church deeply. He founded this church 12 years earlier from when he actually wrote this letter. And he's encouraging them. He encourages them with these wonderful words at the start of the letter. He says, I am sure of this. This is a certain statement. Verse 6 of chapter 1. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Take hold of that in your own lives, folks, because it is true for the Philippian church, it is true for Paul, and it's true for you and I. He who begins a good work in you, that is Christ himself, through the power of his Holy Spirit, will bring it to completion. It's not circumstantial. It's not based 
on any of your own merit. But it's based on the Spirit of God who will work in your heart and life and bring to completion one day your final glorification. When this ragged old body will be transformed into the likeness of Christ. For some of you, that will be a great joy. No, for all of you, that will be great joy. Won't it? It will be great joy. And throughout this letter, he has, he has given us some wonderful thoughts about this progress, this process of growing in Christ. We call it progressive sanctification. It's about our growth in Christ. Uh, Paul Tripp has called this, God has chosen our growth to be a process, not an event. So our life is in process. Our life is in progress towards the goal. If we are in Christ, our life is in process towards the goal of being like Christ. And Paul has given us two major images throughout this letter to consider in our growth. He says, you're to be like a soldier. He used terms like standing firm, like being of one mind, of one spirit, back at the end of chapter 1 striving side by side, advancing the gospel, not frightened by your opponents, not frightened by the enemy. The fact that in this battle you will suffer for the sake of Christ are very military terms, very soldierish terms. And he uses that to say, this is what your Christian life is like. You need to be like a soldier. You need to be united on the cause, united on the focus and the high calling of who you are in Christ. Your union with Christ, according to Paul, is everything. Why? To live as Christ, to die as gain. That was his theology of life. And he's starting to throw this out to the Philippians. And by extension to you and I. Where's your theology of life, folks? That's the question I have. The other image he uses is um, that of an athlete. And we started talking about that last week. He uses the words like press on, straining forward, looking to the goal, looking to the prize, looking to the upward call for the crown that will be received. Strong athletic imagery. Just like what Ken spoke to us this morning in communion, strong athletic imagery. Paul is trying to say as part of your growth in Christ, always look at the prize. Don't be constrained by the stuff that is around here and around there. Like a good athlete who, who starts on the track, gets up from the blocks and goes, he looks forward to the finish line. And we mentioned this last week. This is not a sprint, folks. This is an ultramarathon. Right? This is not a sprint, it's an ultramarathon. You will require perseverance. Because... Satan will buffet you from either side. Satan doesn't want you to succeed in your Christian life. He will place all sorts of barriers and enticements before you to stop you from looking at the prize. Whether it's enticements of fame, whether it's enticements of fortune, enticements of uh, glamour, 
or just straight enticements of self-centeredness and the like. See, when you are Christ-centered, you are other-centered. And this is part of the process of why Paul just says, look to the prize. Look to the high calling of God where you will be like Christ. He started this final exhortation in chapter 3 and he said, rejoice in the Lord. When you rejoice in the Lord, you'll discover that your joy comes from Him. Because your salvation comes from Him. Because it's only Christ's righteousness as a gift of God's grace that comes from Him. That is the foundation and the basis of joy. Not your heritage. Not that you keep the law. Not certain religious rites or not even zealousness. Paul said, I had all those things, but I counted them as loss. As rubbish. As a very strong term, which I won't pronounce here on stage. That's how strong this term is in comparison to Christ's work on your behalf. If you're feeling a little bit down, a little bit in the dumps, folks, focus on what Christ has done for you. That's Paul's encouragement. Think about the fact that Christ's perfect, sinless righteousness is now yours. And that's the way God sees you. He sees you through Christ. Does that cause you to rejoice? I'm pleased. I am pleased it causes you to rejoice in such a victorious way. Fantastic. Last week we discovered that to um, press on is an active commitment to the call of Christ. It's not something that's passive. It's something that goes on day by day. Last week we discovered that to press on is to forget what is behind. No athlete in his own mind looks behind. He always looks forward. So you forget what is behind. And you know, this is one of Satan's major major strategies, isn't it? He always brings back the stuff from behind to try and trip you up, to try and ensnare you, to try and enslave you. No. Forget what is behind, according to Paul here, and look towards the goal. Exert yourself. Strain in your every effort to look to Christ. To realize afresh that the promises He has given you, that one day you'll be with Him, will be realized. It hasn't happened now. It will be realized. You see, we talked about this last week. Perfectionism is not the issue here. You are not, not already perfect. You are forensically perfect. You are declared righteous. But because we walk in this world, we are not already perfect. But through His Spirit, He draws us to perfection. So persevere in that. We looked last week and we saw that to, to think maturely was, a, was one of the keys to pressing on and to hold to what was true, to what has been attained. They are all things that you have in Christ. We discovered last week that um, 
Paul provided a positive and a negative example uh, in this process of pressing on. The, The positive example was himself and fellow workers of the gospel who lived what I would call a cruciformed life. Their life was molded by the cross. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's what I would call a cruciformed life. Your life is molded by the truths and the realities of the gospel in your heart. He gave us that example. And then he gave us a negative example of those who were enemies of the cross. The positive example is given because it's there to encourage and strengthen us. And that's what the, the, the wonderful design of God's body is. Collectively, we can encourage and exhort one another through his word. We can see examples of faith. We can hear it in testimonies of people. We can see it as we do life together. And that will spur us on towards the prize. But then he also warns, he says, there are enemies of the cross. And he describes those enemies, he says, their God is their belly, their glory is their shame, or their sin, they glory in their sin. And their minds are set on earthly things. And that type of thinking, if you're an enemy of a cross, there is only one result. Destruction. That's what these verses tell us. And that's where we completed last week. And now we're going to look from verse 20 onwards. Because what Paul does here is he now says, okay, I want you to focus on this prize, but as well as focusing on this prize, I want to return to another theme which we started back in 127. So he returns back to a theme. And it's all about being a citizen. It's all about living in a manner that is worthy of being a citizen of heaven. He uses this as a major contrast between enemies of the cross. On the previous verse in 19, in verse 20, he says, but you are citizens of heaven. And you can always see between the lines, you are citizens of heaven, so live like it. He's already explained that from 127. Only let your manner of life be as a citizen of heaven, worthy of the gospel. And then he used those military terms, standing side by side, being one of one mind, being of one spirit, united. So he says, I want to return and just focus you on the fact that as you strain towards the goal, realize who you are. Realize that you are part of the kingdom, that you have been bought with a price. And you are a citizen of heaven. Now this is an interesting term he uses here because they were citizens of where? Philippi. They were citizens of a Roman colony. Most of these folks were Roman citizens, which was a pretty prestigious thing. You know, I would, I would liken that to be being a New Zealand citizen, actually. You know, that's such a prestigious thing. And, and I many want to strive to be New Zealand citizens. But, you know, this is, this is what it's like in Philippi. 
They, they would strive to be Roman citizens. It was something that was of great value in the kingdom at the time. But Paul's not renouncing this, this uh, common citizenship in the, in the earthly Rome. He's making a little bit of a contrary statement here. He says, yes, even though you're here on earth, and this is what's been flowing right through this letter, uh, realize that, yeah, even though you're here in Philippi, you're a citizens of a Roman colony, and you may be proud of that, and you, you may also you know, enjoy the benefits of that. The real and greater reality is that you are subjects of heaven. He's realigning their focus. You may have the rights of being a Roman citizen, but above all, you are subjects of heaven. You are citizens of heaven. And this is where you eagerly await a saviour. You eagerly await for the Lord Jesus Christ to transform your body to be like His glorious body. He's talking about the final glorification of a Christian. You know, he's, he's showing them, and he has been right throughout this letter, that yes, even though they sit physically in Rome, the greater citizenship and the greater responsibility lies with Christ. You know, the readers would have understood this more deeply than we do. Because here, the word Saviour, Paul doesn't use the, the word Saviour very often in the New Testament within his writings. He uses it twice. Once here and once in Ephesians. It's a commonly understood term in a Roman colony that Saviour related to Caesar. So he was using a play on imagery saying, yes, just as you are citizens of Rome and, and under Rome, they consider Caesar as a saviour. He's realigning it. He's saying, no, you are citizens of heaven where there is only one saviour, and that is the Lord. It's a powerful statement. The Philippians understood the common title for Caesar, but now he was moving it away from the common title and saying, your saviour is the Lord. And also in saying this, this title, saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, he just once again just pours out the full deity of Jesus in this statement. As he's already referred to in chapter 2. And this is one of the ultimate reasons for rejoicing in the Lord. One of the ultimate reasons. The Lord is our Saviour. No matter what your circumstances, no matter what your uh, 
situation is, if you're in Christ, the Lord will always be your saviour. You will always have the righteousness of Christ counted to your account. You will always have an eternal home waiting. And that's what he's saying. And he's saying, just rejoice in that. Rejoice in that fact. No matter what the Philippians' present suffering was, and we know they were suffering because the pressure was coming upon them from the government, from the, the colony, because to even survive in that culture as a Christian was becoming increasingly difficult. Your food line would be cut because you would not go and worship in the trade guilds of the day. We've talked about this, you know. If you had a trade like a seller of purple, which we know Lydia had, there would be a guild of sellers of purple. And part of their guild would be events where they'd have to go and worship other deities. So you come to Christ and you, you see, this is not a good thing. I don't want to worship another deity. I still need to make a living. So after a time, you, you, it's noticed that you're not attending some of these events. So some of the other guild members say, well, why aren't you there? Don't you want to be part of the, the purple selling guild? And the pressure is applied, right? Well, no, I can't really because I'm a follower of Christ. I can't really because I just serve the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. I can't be seen worshipping other gods. Oh, okay, well, we just might have to remove you from our guild. That was the situation at Philippi. I bet if I asked around this room, that's the situation in many of our workplaces. We may not be removed from our workplace, but we will be shunned because of our faith. Take heart, folks, you're a citizen of heaven. Look to Christ. He will provide and sustain you. Press on, realizing your union with him. He then moves on to chapter 4, verse 1. And this is a bit of a transition verse when you look at it. It could either relate to what he's just been talking about or it could be setting up what he's about to talk about. So I'll let you make that call. Uh, he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown stand firm, thus in the Lord, my beloved. Can you see this beautiful tender approach of Paul here? He's just given them a fairly major exhortation about pressing on and then you see his deep love for these people. He longs for them. He loves them. He talks about them being his joy and crown. And then he commands them, stand firm. Part of your role as a follower of Christ is to stand firm and look towards the prize. It could be you could be looking back to the prize, or he could be saying, Stand firm for about what I'm about to tell you in verses two through nine. 
I'll let you be the judge of that and, um, and, and wrestle with that in your own meditation. Because he's just, he's just told them in verse 21 that God is in control. He is sovereign. He's just told him in verse 21 that the salvation which they have is not just for today, but it's forever. He's told them in verse 21 that Christ is coming again. Rejoice in that. And he's told them also that at his coming you will inherit your final glory that belongs to Christ alone and to those who are his. That's the prize. Stand firm in that. And I guess the question for me today, and I don't know all of you here, is can you stand firm in that knowledge that Christ is your Saviour? Can you stand firm in that knowledge? Do you know that Christ had to die on a cross for the sin of the world? Your sin separates you from a loving Saviour. Your sin separates you from God. Your sin, as described previously, makes you an enemy of the cross. So can you stand firm in the fact that you are His? If you can't, I implore you today. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Cry out to God in mercy and say, forgive me. I want to trust and place my faith in Christ. You know, you may be here and you just come to church because that's the thing you do. That won't save you. But I'm imploring you today. Think about your relationship before a holy God. And get right with Him today by confessing your sin and crying out and putting your faith and trust in Christ, who is the only one who can save. So he calls them to stand firm and then we have this really interesting little section in verse 2 and 3 where the whole focus tends to change here. He, he starts addressing an internal issue inside the church. He, he mentions these two ladies whose names I can never pronounce. So I just think for simplicity we'll call them E and S. Okay? And she was really kind of humorous. I was... Um, I was looking at a, uh, a commentary on this and a, a fellow by the name of Gordon Fee wrote a wonderful commentary on the book of Philippians. Does anyone know what Gordon's Fee nationality might be? Gordon Fee? Fee. Come on, Chinese. Asian background, right? So he, he, he'd come to the conclusion inside his, his commentary that, that probably the original meaning of um, these two Eudodia and Sintaisha was success and lucky. And so I looked at that and I thought, is that really from the Greek or is that from, from this fellow's background? But whatever it might be, these ladies 
were co-workers with Paul. They were fellow workers standing side by side in the trenches for the sake of the gospel. The text tells us that. But there was some form of disunity going on here. Some form of division, some form of divisiveness. Does anyone know what that might be? I have no idea. The text does not tell us. The text does not tell us what the conflict is. But there is a conflict and it clearly is grieving Paul. He's heard this report from Epaphroditus. We know Epaphroditus has come to see him in chapter 2 and obviously it's being a topic of conversation. And I would suggest that the seeds of this could rip the church apart. The only thing I can suggest that the conflict may be about is about the work and progress of the gospel. End of verse 2 may give us indication of that. He's saying, I entreat them, which is very strong language, I entreat both these ladies to agree in the Lord. He's calling them back to unity in Christ. And he says, think about your conflict through your position in Christ. And he's, he's enlisted others within the church, a, a true companion and, um, and Clement, to work with these ladies in community to, to, to resolve this disunity. So that's what he does here. He, he, it's pretty unusual for Paul to actually use names and to really get into directing individuals. But he can only do that because of his great love for them. He just read he loves them deeply and longs for them and he has this deep pastoral care and concern for them. He says, you just got to sort it out because it's going to destroy the testimony of the gospel. That's what division and unity does, folks, in a church. Destroys the testimony of the gospel. It destroys the name of Christ. And disunity and division comes from self-centeredness. And we are all called to wrestle with that and encourage one another towards unity. Then he gives a straight out command in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. He, he, sort of, he started with that in chapter 3 verse 1. And now he sort of bookends it here. He said, things I have told you, the things that, that you have seen to, to press on, to realize that your righteousness is only the righteousness of Christ, to realize that the high calling of God is that you will be glorified. Rejoice in that. Why would we be dull Christians when we meditate on these things? Eh? Why would we look as though we've been baptized in lemon juice? Let's dwell on the fact of who we are in Christ and that should cause us rejoicing. Rejoice in the fact that your citizenship is in heaven. Stand firm in that. Rejoice in the fact that this body that you have is going to be transformed one day. That's got to be worth rejoicing in. Rejoice in the fact that God has promised you an eternal home with him. 
And when you do that, the momentary afflictions of this world will be nothing. They'll be light. Hebrews talks about that. As part of the rejoicing, he moves on to verse 5 through 7. We'll talk about it, and then we'll do 8 through 9. He says, part of this your rejoicing is that your reasonableness, your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. So with this rejoicing, there should be a complete outflow of what people see. In your Christian walk, as you, as you press on towards the mark of the high call of Christ, this should be known to everybody. That's a challenge, isn't it? I remember when I used to work in a, in a fairly uh, toxic environment. That's not where I work now, uh, but where I used to. <laughs> I thought I'd better just put that frame in there. <laughs> but when I used to work inside a, an industry that was pretty hard-nosed and going through some pretty tough things, that it was very difficult to let my reasonableness be shown to others. It was difficult for me to actually turn the other cheek at times. It was difficult for me to not to argue about certain points. It was difficult for me to put others before myself. That's a struggle we face. Do you know what? The Spirit of God dwells in each of us and He can provide that power to do so. And He gives further instruction on this here. Verse 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving that your requests be made known to God and the peace that which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Straight out command. Do not be anxious about anything. That's a tough one in 2017, is it not? That's a tough command amongst a society that continually throws things at us to be anxious about. So therefore, should we just forget this command? What do you reckon? If we forgot this command, how would our rejoicing go? Folks, Paul was pretty pointed here. He uh, He's talking initially to the context of the, the Philippians where probably their lifeline was on the, their bread line was on the line. Nero wasn't far away. It was another couple of years before Nero started actually slashing and burning Christians through every colony of the, the Roman Empire. Suffering was commonplace, unlike today. Yeah, we, we may get the odd bit of uh, sassiness towards us and the mouth and things like that. But he's saying, don't be anxious, you Philippians, about anything. I'm saying, Canterbury Gardens, don't be anxious about anything. 
I'm not saying it, actually, the Word of God saying it. Why? Let's go back with me to Matthew chapter 6, please. Matthew 6. If uh, Paul's testimony is not, not, not enough for you, let's look at Jesus' testimony. This is a good testimony. Matthew 6:25. Uh, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. This is Jesus talking to, uh, to a bunch of disciples. What you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, nor about what you put on it, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you can add a single hour to the span of your life by being anxious? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arranged like one of these. But if God does clothe the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O ye of little faith. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that, that you need them all. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient is the day is its own trouble. What do you notice about those verses? What's the command coming out of those verses? What's the command, folks? What is Jesus saying? No problems, no worries. I'll put it in Aussie vernacular for you. No worries. Don't be anxious. It's a command. Paul reiterates it. He says here, don't be anxious about food, about life, about clothing. Why? God's got that under control. He talks about it. Verse 32, For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. God has got that. So don't worry yourselves about that. Back to Philippians. Same sort of thing. He says, A sure sign of moving away from your anxiety is this, thankfulness and prayer. It's amazing how when you start listening to good things that are happening and the things that God has given you, how your anxiety dissipates. Have you tried that? Look, I know anxiety is something that is, is, is uh, scourging our society. You get anxious about all sorts of things. The biblical response here is twofold. Set your hearts and minds on Christ, which comes down in verse 7. But firstly, think about thanksgiving. And that's what he's doing right through this passage, right? He says, press on towards the mark. Press on to the things that you know about, the things that you have attained, the things that are promised. When you think about that, they are things of thanksgiving and your anxiety will dissipate. And the other thing is, talk to God about it. If you're anxious... Talk to God about it. And I know some people get in such dark places they cannot mutter a thing. 
instruction here is to talk to God. He will provide. He will be sufficient. And the promise is when this process takes place that the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your mind. See, the heart of, of, of protection against anxiety is your heart and your mind. What you think and how you act. Thinking is key. Acting is also key. And then he continues with the, the, the supplication here. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. He uses six things that he wants to instruct your mind upon. If you, trouble with, if, you, if you have trouble with anxiety, think about these things. True, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable things. Not the opposite of these things. Also think about what you have heard, what you have learned, what you have received. That's what Paul says. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. So to overcome anxiety, it's got to be a focus on Christ. It's got to be a focus on guarding your hearts and your minds. Look, we live in a media-saturated culture. The information highway is no longer just a highway, you know? It's like standing under a jolly um, fire hose and opening your mouth and just being drowned with things. We get drowned and we get swamped and we, by the ideologies of this world, so how do you guard your heart and mind? This is what he's going at. How do you guard your heart and mind? By thinking on things that are noble. Folks, we need to take control of our minds. Because out of the mind, from the heart, the mind does speak. You know, we know that. Psalm 101 talks about this. I will walk in my house with a blameless heart. I will set before my eyes no vile thing. We need to make Christ our Lord in our prime time. All right? We're so saturated with media images, with internet, with Netflix, with television, with whatever form of media is out there. Where's your heart and mind set? Is it set on those things? Where's your prime time set? Is it set on those things or is it set on God and his word? Because if you saturate your minds with things that aren't healthy, what will happen? Your practice will be unhealthy. That's not difficult to ascertain. See, you, Ken Hughes said a wonderful thing and some of the guys I meet with were working through a book and one of the, one of the um, chapters is Disciplines of a Godly Mind. And he said this, You will never have a Christian mind without reading the Scriptures regularly because you cannot be profoundly influenced by that which you do not know. Right? You can never have a Christian mind without reading the Scriptures regularly because you cannot be profoundly influenced by that which you do not know. To have the mind of Christ, you've got to read about Christ. Simple. Not so simple to apply sometimes. Let's face it. 
you're filled with God's word, your life can then be informed and directed by God. Your domestic relationships, your child rearing, your career, your ethical decisions, your interior moral life. The way to the Christian mind is through God's word. That's the challenge, folks, that Paul gives the Philippians in the end. He said to rejoice in the Lord is to guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When you guard your heart and your mind, when you put a protection around your heart and mind, this is what we're talking about, put a protection around your heart and mind, you will dwell on those things that are beautiful. And that will encourage you to press on. This is pretty challenging stuff. Don't beat yourself up, but just fall on God's grace. God's grace is the only thing that will enable you to set your heart and mind on Christ Jesus. God's grace is the only thing that will enable you to get over your anxiousness as you submit everything with prayer and thanksgiving to Him. God's grace is the only thing that will develop in you a heart that will want to look for the noble things, the honourable things, the pure things, the excellent things. God's grace is the thing that will give your heart a heart of peace. My encouragement to you this week, folks, set your hearts and your minds on Christ for the glory of God. Thanks, music team.